0: Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 40, our final episode of the first season. I'm Paul, and I'm here, as I have been since episode one, with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Today, we'll be speaking with Pritzker Prize-winning architect, Tom Maine, founder of Morphosis Architects and founding executive director of the Now Institute at UCLA, and Yi Sung-Yi, principal of Morphosis Architects and director of the Now Institute. Our conversation today will be focused on the recently released culmination of their research work in Haiti, a 732-page almanac titled Haiti Now. Before we get to our interview, we'd like to quickly discuss this podcast. As I just mentioned, this is the final episode of the first season if you could call 40 episodes a season, we'll be taking a little break before returning with a new format for season two. The plan is to split this show into two separate shows, an interview only show and a new news in review discussion panel format show. Until then, we'd like to find out what our listeners want from the show. And we'd also like to talk about what we have learned from the show and some of the highlights. Amelia, what are your thoughts on this first season?
1: I listen to a lot of podcasts. I have about 14 running at once as a subscription, and then there are like about a half a dozen that I occasionally pop back on, subscribe to, get back off, like go back and forth to a kind of a la carte system. So I was extremely excited when we first started doing the podcast to try to figure out with all of these different tones and styles of show that I had been listening to, how to figure out what the right tone and style for the Arcanex podcast would be. And our first idea was to go off of trying to emulate the site, you know, trying to continue our identity from the site into audio format. And I don't think any of us really understood how difficult and like complicated that would really be. So one of the first things that we we tried to do was really take advantage of the community aspect of the site and translate that into a varied discussion through audio formatting of the issues that were on hand, not only of recent news items, but just ideological discussions or what it meant to be a practicing architect today. And I think that was one of the most difficult things that we finally realized as we started getting into the swing of things, would be to control, right? Was trying to continue having that tone of the site maintained in the podcast while also keeping things kind of, you know, tight and interesting to listen to. So it's been a wild ride in this first season, but I think we're kind of finally finding our right stride and to the point of balancing a tone that still sticks with the site, but isn't maybe exactly the same, but kind of going into this new frontier of podcasting from the website. And it's been great having like Donna and Ken on because you guys add the uh, the realness. <laughs> you guys are the ones <laughs> practicing, the ones out fighting it out in the field.
2: You know, what I have been most amazed with, with the podcast outside of the actual work of doing it with you all, which has been enormously fun and, and it continues to be. Whenever I meet someone out in the world who listens to the podcast regularly, I can in no way pack all of those listeners into one easy category. I'm meeting students and professionals and people who are in non-traditional practice and people who listen to it while they draft for their boss and people who are the boss and listen to it while they walk their dogs and get out of the office. Like I'm, I'm hearing so many different, kinds of people enjoy the podcast. And they're all architects or architecture related. But I just feel like it speaks to the broadness of the field, again, of how many different ways there are to do architecture and to be an architect that I don't think it's easy for us to just confine it to one sort of listener group. So that has been really wonderful to hear from people when I hear from these disparate kinds of people that they are all enjoying it. I'm glad that we can be very, very broad based, although I do think that sort of honing in on some very specific interviews will be really useful in the future for other people.
1: Yeah, when we think about what this podcast will be in subsequent seasons, one of the things we're really excited about is archiving all the people we've been able to speak with and all those conversations that aren't necessarily so much about topical news items, but are more about their practice or their work or offer a kind of piece of evidence from the certain time that we're in and how practice is changing, especially now that we're kind of getting up out of this recession and people are kind of lift their heads up and look around and have a little bit more opportunity, that we are starting to see that diversification kind of flower. And so regarding audience, I've been really amazed at, at who has come up and said, oh, yeah, totally, I, re- I totally listened to that episode or I remember that or I'm and I see people engaging on the forum or engaging in comments, referencing the podcast. It's ex- really it's extremely exciting because in this new media form, it, or I guess it's not really a new media form podcasting, that it's been around for a while. But in the new business form that this is becoming, it still feels very much like the rules are being currently written, that there's a lot of experimentation to be had. So like one thing we were kind of toying around with was how much much of our personal selves do we involve with the actual content of the show? And that kind of manifests as the intros, the intro section that we were to have at the beginning of each episode. We would kind of like hash back and forth what we were up to, ideally with having to do with something architectural and having to do with the involvement on the site. And then kind of that would, episode by episode, stray into movie recommendations and <laughs> what we had done that weekend and whose birthday we had attended and things like that. And that was something that personally I kind of always was reflecting on this as we were doing these shows in trying to figure out what that right balance was. How much of why people are listening to this is because they, they like us, they like the personality of it and the particular perspective, and how much of it is more of our professional voice, more of our critical take on issues and conversations with people. And so striking that balance has been something that I also think we're going to try very specifically to address in the second season and grow from season one.
0: Yeah, one thing that that's really struck me in the process of of this first season is how difficult it can be to combine a discussion about what's going on in the news with a often very complex interview that we are sharing within the same episode and how to contextualize those two things and how to package an interview, which is often timeless in the types of uh, topics that we discuss with our interviewees, which have been some really impressive individuals in the world of architecture, how to package that and wrap that around such time-specific news discussion. That's something that that I'm looking forward to breaking away from as we move into interview-only podcast and a news panel podcast.
1: And so for Donna and Ken, do you guys have any thoughts about how maybe in the context of doing these conversations every week for the podcast and and discussing weekly news issues and getting to talk with other people for interviews, has there been any like feedback or kind of exchange between how you operate within your own professional practice and your own identity as architects and then how you bring that, those reflections into the actual podcast discussions?
3: I think one of the things that I um, rather enjoy about and I find difficult about the news events uh, what I, and what I rather enjoy about the interviews is the length to which I will go to prepare for an interview. I'll try to go deeper into someone's background to try to find something that hasn't been talked about in other interviews. And so I'm always trying to approach it from that angle. And I'm trying to get, you know, those questions about what, what you're reading and what you're listening to. You know, I think it's a point of we can get all the the expansive amount of, you know, ARCA speak from any magazine or any book about a person, but to try to make them human, to try to bring some human quality to them is kind of what I was approaching in that. So to look for things that may not be specifically what we were talking about. So that was, you know, I really want to make that concerted effort to keep doing that. I think the difficulty with the the more timely discussions around the news topics, it's harder to get deeper into those topics because they happen so fast. So a lot of it is Kind of like the website where you're responding, but that immediacy is not there to kind of somebody to throw you on the, on the ground and stomp on your head for saying something as kind of stupid. So you have to wait, wait a couple of days for that to happen before the podcast is released. And then you get that. But I, you know, I liked the way the format was going. I think part of me just kind of, it felt like a magazine, a magazine format typically has, you know, a, a main kind of driving theme, which is usually the cover. And it's usually an interview. And then you have all these other topics that are discussed inside the magazine. So I always thought that the podcast should, was a reflection of a kind of a, an audio magazine edition of Archonnect. So I didn't mind that there was a difficulty in transitioning from one to the other? But I understand, you know, the the need to kind of they get so long and it's really difficult to kind of sit through, you know, two hours of me jabbering about something.
1: <laughs> well, but you are also hitting on something that we've talked about a lot is like the, the bringing the personality to these things and how, you know, it's a little bit like we want to have the interviewees bring their personality in and kind of bring that out a little bit more because you often don't get that. And um, especially with more authority figures in the world of architecture, that it often isn't something that comes across and it's extremely exciting to try to get to that level, especially through the audio medium, because it's so much more personal, as we've all learned, and for both better and for worse, in trying to s- explain something with like your actual voice, how you feel about something or your interpretation of something versus sitting behind a uh, commenting box and kind of throwing your opinion out into the ether. So I'm sorry, Donna, did you have something to add as well?
2: Well, Ken, like you were saying about that, there's this real difference between being able to dig deep in the interviews versus this sort of quick, hot, take pass we do of the news. When I listen to podcasts, I have to be in the certain right frame of mind for certain podcasts. And sometimes you just feel like listening to that really deep dive into one topic because it's a little more, I don't know, meditative or you, it's more you're in the frame of mind to be educating yourself where there are also times when I just want the the conversation basically i want to hear conversation around me and so i like listening to the the podcasts that i do listen to others are, there are some that are very personality based and you just want to hear that the people talk because their voices their community around you as you as you work i mostly listen to podcasts when i work so i think that point about doing a little more research to before the interviews is really important and i think if we can separate those two things out the interviews really do become this fabulous archive of architectural knowledge that's very, very serious. And there will be certain times when people will really want to educate themselves in that way.
0: I'd like to bring something up that's uh, pretty interesting that I don't think we've ever brought up in this podcast. Two years ago, which I guess has been almost uh, two years already, since Amelia joined us at Archonnect. Prior to that, her and I had both been thinking about podcasting. And when I interviewed Amelia for the position here at Archonnect. I brought up the idea of a podcast and her eyes lit up and she had been, you know, we were on the same page with that. And also I remember Donna and Ken, you guys mentioned something about a podcast too, while this was just kind of like a little idea that was brewing in my mind. So it's interesting that we were all thinking about doing a podcast separately in our own world and it all came to uh fruition. Personally, my my original excitement about a podcast was really inspired by Mark Marin's podcast. I mean, he's an amazing interviewer, which is very difficult to kind of get to that level. I mean, he, it's a talent that he has that he's mastered over the years of of doing this, but it's a real it's a real skill. But what I've always been so amazed at with his ability is to bring so much humanity out of the people that he interviews, it's never really about their work. It's about who they are as a person. And as a result, their work is that much more interesting. You know, I've listened to so many episodes that Mark Mark Maron's WTF podcast that I had no idea who the person he was interviewing was. But at the end of listening to it, I really wanted to, to find out about their work because they were just such an interesting person. And there were also episodes with people that I was very familiar with their work. And after hearing the episodes, I was just so much more interested. So, I mean, my idea from the beginning was like, can we do this with architects? I mean, can we, can we get to know these architects? at a deeper level as people to give, to provide more context to the work that they do, which everybody associates with them. You know, I mean, their work is out there. Everybody knows the work of all these well-known architects, but very few people know really who these architects are as people and why the work is the way it is. But, and anyways, so I think, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed this season that was added to the podcast by UCAN was the, the two questions at the end of the interviews about what they're listening to and what they're reading. I think that that was really the first step into that personal world. I, I could always sense these kind of walls breaking down in our interviewees when that question comes up, because it's really, it's all about them, you know, and it's it's about who they are. It has nothing to do with their work. It's what inspires them and what interests them. And their, those responses to those were so often so insightful and, and interesting.
3: And I, it's funny because it's that question. Uh, those questions kind of came out of a, a, an experience that I had in college, where the studio professor I had, Don Wall, thought he wanted to do a studio where we had all send postcards. To different architects, famous architects, uh, Peter Eisenman and, and others, asking them what book were they particularly reading at that moment, and then we would design a library around that book. I'm not always the, the most learned architect. I have a very particular area I like to focus on. It's really outside of architecture. So the things that touch me more are the things that are very personal to people. And you know, when I think about the the, the three or four podcasts that we've done, that kind of come to mind when I when I think about the personal was Todd and, and Billy's you know asking them what they thought that what they thought about their legacy and how they didn't really think a lot about that legacy and they thought you know their work and I thought, Just, you know, I was actually the first time I actually was attentive to the interview subject where I could actually respond in that moment that their legacy was much broader than their work based on what we knew and what they had said about the people in their firm and and the relationships that they had. And last week when we spoke to Denise Scott Brown, I mean, the one question that came to mind, I never got to ask. They've been together for so long. I I was really curious. I've asked this question of uh, my ex-wife's grandmother. And I asked her, you know, how did, how did she meet her husband? And the story that came out of that meeting was a story that no one in the family had heard before. And I just, it was just a gentle question. This is like right after the wake and nobody in the family had heard that particular question. I'm sure, you know, it's probably, she would just maybe just simply say that they met in school, but I would, I would have gone a little bit further and get a little bit, a sense of, you know, who they were and maybe try to touch on something that, you know, maybe even her son didn't know or something along those lines. But so that's why I really, I, like I said, I don't have a lot to say architecturally because I think their work speaks for itself, but I thought the personal was a, a good way to go with people.
2: I totally agree. And I think, you know, when you can, especially because I think a lot about students and how students perceive us, some of my greatest educational experiences in architecture school were going to my professors' houses and see, you know, for an event, like after a studio final critique or something and seeing how they lived, just seeing, who they are as people a little bit more, and I think bringing that humanity, like you say, Paul Mark Maron does it so spectacularly. But some people are really easy to more so than others to draw that out of. I think we've had some guests. Elizabeth Timmy springs to mind immediately. She just, you know, people who just live their work so completely that their personality comes through in all of the way that they speak about it. I have to admit, I think the place we did not succeed as well as we I wish we could have was in speaking with Patrick Schumacher. You know, he is so intense in his work. I felt like it was really hard to speak with him on a more personal level. And I wish we had been able to. And I think if we'd had a little more time, we probably would have been able to to, to get into that with him. But uh, you know, Patrick's a human. He's a person. That's what we architects do. We are supposed to understand the human, right? So of course, we want to learn more about Everyone as humans, everyone are users of our buildings. That's what we need to understand about them is is their common humanity with us.
1: And yeah, that's something that I find so fascinating because I also, in listening to Marin's podcast, find it so amazing that these people are just, like, what he gets out of them. But then I think, these are comedians mostly. They're actors. Their job <laughs> is, in a way, to be able to talk about themselves. And that's very much less the expectation of an architect. In fact, there's also at work the battling against the stereotype of the architect as this lone practitioner, this one that is isolated and just operating on their own agenda and not deigning to have to, to communicate themselves or let alone their personality to a wider public, which of course is not, has not been the case of anyone that we've interviewed. It's not the, not the reality, but it's still a stereotype that is being kind of slowly shed off. So it's something that I struggle with because I personally, and I'm this has to do more with my like critical outlook on anything, is that I try not to extrapolate someone's personality onto their creative projects. I don't think that when I'm at least trying to critically engage with something or critically dissect something, I don't want to know precisely what that architect's intention was or, you know, what Bob Dylan album they were listening to at the time or like what flowers were on their kitchen table. Those kinds of details I can sometimes find critically, when I'm approaching a project critically, a little bit distracting and difficult to deal with on their own. They're fascinating. And I think they're kind of a thing that we need to at least give more credence to when we're doing these interviews and how helpful it can be in just kind of getting people to open up and become more of a open subject for Donna, as you mentioned, a future education and just like serving as a role models in the profession.
0: Going back to Marin, I thought, speaking of of, uh, getting people to open up, I thought it was interesting in the wrap-up episode after his interview with President Obama, he was talking about how typically before every episode he has a certain routine where he tries to get his guests to loosen up and be themselves and be relaxed so that he can actually have an effective conversation with them. But the only time that that didn't happen was with Obama because Obama immediately took that role and tried to relax Mark Maron prior to the the conversation, just because of, you know, his position. And, and that's probably, you know, his job. He probably does that multiple times a day throughout throughout his, uh, his career as, as president.
2: I think a really good politician has to be able to do that, right? They have to make you think that they are completely focused on you. Right. And I'm not saying Barack Obama is not genuine because I've completely fallen for him. So... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, here's, okay, here's because we've made a lot of relations to Mark Maron's podcast. Here's the architectural tie-in. Last week, I went to a coffee shop that is run out of a guy's garage in Atwater Village. And he has a roastery that's his own or roaster, whatever you call it. But he doesn't have he hasn't like gotten it going yet. So he's basically running a tasting room out of his garage. And we were talking and he said that he had been interviewed by a couple of German architects who had come to the U.S. specifically to research the architectural projects of people repurposing their garages into different whatevers. And of course, they also wanted to interview Mark Maron, who famously does his podcast, whether it's with interviewing the president, of the United States or a comedian or whoever out of his own garage. I believe Mount Washington, neighborhood of Los Angeles. Highland Park. Is it Highland Park? Yep. Okay, so in the Highland Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. So I just thought that was a lovely kind of tie-in because we've been referencing that Marin so much. And as we kind of come to these reflections of season one.
0: Well, so that said, we want to hear what you guys are loyal listeners think about the show.
1: And, and not so loyal listeners. They want to hear the, the dissidents. Yeah, you don't have to be so
0: loyal. <laughs> any, any degree of loyalty is fine with us. But we'd like to find out what you have enjoyed this season, what you have not enjoyed, and what you would like to see in season two in both of our upcoming podcasts. We have a survey online and this survey will not only provide us with very valuable feedback, but it will also put you in the running to receive a copy of Haiti Now, as we are about to listen all about from Tom Main and Isang Yi. So go online. The survey is going to be located at arcnct.co forward slash sessions dash feedback. That's arcn ct.co forward slash sessions feedback and please fill that out be honest be nice be mean whatever just be honest we're going to take the feedback very seriously and we're hoping to provide you with the best podcast possible going forward
1: So until then, you can get excited to fill out the survey and also get your pencils sharpened for the Haiti Now book, which is really fantastic. It's quite a hefty resource. And once, as you'll hear in the interview, really something that will be referred to in years to come and as a resource on Haiti. So let's listen to the interview with Tom and please fill out that survey. So maybe we can start with an origin story. It's been about 10 years. What Uh, began? Why did it start?
4: But it was one of these really kind of ad hoc things, um... Uh, Richard Kashalik the director of MOCA, originally, right? And uh, kind of behind a huge amount of urban initiatives in, in Los Angeles, one of the people that's behind mm-hmm. Disney and blah, blah, blah. We got to know each other, and we, he took me out to dinner one night, and he had this this idea, and he's an initiator of stuff. He was one of the, the behind-the-scenes people in L.A. that was always doing things, and had a vast interest in urbanism. And um, we had a conversation, and he was interested in, what could we do to kind of initiate desire and interest in Urban potential in Los Angeles. As there seems to be nothing that's taking place even at a conceptual level, right? And he initiated this idea of, of well, the two of us started talking about it and we were, we were discussing, uh, coming up with an idea of a, of a graduate studio, and then maybe this is me coming in, that was not student work because I became very sensitive over a lifetime. I started teaching when I was 27. I started my practice 27. And to tell clients uh, you're a faculty member already is a death death knell, And and then student work is considered student work. And it's usually a kind of a negative connotation, somewhat negative connotation. And um,
1: because of experience, a, because of age. And, and
4: I'm going, no, no, we, we, we need a, an advanced research studio and we're going to connect professional world and, and graduate students. And we came up with this idea of this new a new type of studio, and it was going to join people in my office, Amorphosis, and, and a studio. And he funded it and, and initiated this, this thing. And we did our first project, and it was the LA Now, the study of Los Angeles. And it just immediately took off. And I should say, I guess I was probably aware the whole time that UCLA has a legacy it's, it's, uh, with UIG. And I'm old enough that in my first knowledge of UCLA, I was there with Perloff. And I was a fifth-year student at USC. And I was going over to UCLA to meet Peter Cook and Ron Heron and all the ArcherGamp boys. and But it was run by an urban planner, and, right, with uh, with Harvey Perloff. And then UIG was a, quite a well-known institution for for decades. And so that in a way I'm filling, we were going to fill a gap that existed at UCLA. And then I had, and he was aware of this, I had shifted from SciArc to UCLA and that I was, um, at that time becoming more interested in urban work in my academic pursuits. And, um, Finding that the the formal kind of part of the work that I'm known for, or was known for, whatever, was less interesting to me in the academic world, and I needed a different, a bigger platform, and that uh, UCLA offered a, a very, very different academic platform in the university setting, et cetera, that met those needs. And it was just the confluence of these things were coming together through um, our conversation with Richard. And then that project, I don't know, if I look at my past and just the growth of a, a firm that started with two people <laughs> and over many, many years that now has 70 people in, in, in quite a few different countries, things just happen that are that take place out of the work itself. And I'm very, very kind of simple and straightforward that way. I just, uh, I don't develop a lot of trajectories and goals. I just produce the work. And if, if it's moving, if it has an interesting trajectory, it seems to just take off. It goes somewhere. And that's exactly what happened. It happened, I had a very, very interesting group of students. I happened to have some very good people in my studio at the time. And I think um, we produced one of the most interesting documents from the very beginning. And we had a very, very different approach than the now. That's um just Allowed us to kind of take off in a certain way, right? And then it just again, and then it's been ten years, and we've been uh,
1: with Madrid been and producing the projects and kind mm-hmm.
4: of work in, in in that area. And again, the, the, I've been really insistent in a in a kind of professionalism that I'm absolutely want to produce relevant work that's 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 absolutely connected to our discipline. And I'm again the student work thing I have no interest in. And I'm and and at the same time, I think expanding architecture beyond especially maybe in my generation, that it's been seen as much more within the formal aesthetic terms and in some way detached, I think. And I would go back and ask you, Paul being an out of sire, that in some ways that represents some way that detachment, it can be talked about. And um, I'm somebody that can only see architecture within political, social, cultural, economic terms. And it's, it's rootedness in um, It's potential to shape behavior. It's, its potential to um, somehow change the world within real terms, and now I guess I'm going to be an amazing optimist or something, or part of the modern, and unlike early modernism that was sought in very grandiose terms, I'm um, way, way beyond that generationally, and see it within much more incremental, kind of realistic terms. But still, I, I can only see architecture in its in its connective in its connective terms.
1: I think working out of LA is something I was particularly interested in. How how this was born out of a relationship with Los Angeles, and then came on to be involved with UCLA. So, can you talk a little bit about the relationship that you have with the university in particular?
4: Well, it's a uh, that's grown again. It's been ten years. It's a again. It has a uh, I have a broad platform of the university with vast departments and capabilities in terms of um, a research center that are multidisciplinary, et cetera, all right? And then I should probably skip what happened four years ago now or five years ago? Five, <laughs> five, 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 five years ago. Five years ago is that we were made uh, Chancellor uh, Block and saw our work in, in New Orleans. And the New Orleans, the, the Brad Pitt Initiative, the Floathouse, which enough, I, it, it, I didn't even think was one of our most successful, certainly not in formal terms. In another way I think it was incredibly successful. Projects just got a huge attention, and it just got an enormous publication. And apparently, he saw it someplace. I think it was on Canal Palouse out of Paris. And I got a call from um, Tensier Block. It's a big university. And uh, we had lunch, and he just basically was, it was a conversation. is just saying, I'm seeing kind of what you're doing. I'm interested in it. Let's talk. And uh, he discussed about making me an official center. And a center at UCLA is, the, is their official research group and the biology medicine engineering right and um, we're working at this point autonomously and anyway the short uh, long short short um, yeah, he made us into a center and then they that includes some um, additional funding from the university and we're um, as of that time um, the, the now Institute is now um, part of the university as mm-hmm. As one of its centers. and um, that was um, again one of these <laughs> evolutionary things that just kind of happens as you keep pursuing your your work, et cetera. Right, and in that one, we were from L.A. We had done L.A. Now one, two, three, four, four. Then when you went, we were in Madrid, and then. Somewhere in there, we took a year off and it was kind of, there's times we got kind of exhausted too and took a lot of energy. It wasn't, we're no longer faculty members. We're kind of running our own little, it's a little sub office, right? And um, we're also, I have to say, we're funding it. That's a whole other conversation. And I was, the funding was starting to wear me out. And because um, we were, we had staff, our own staff that are not UCLA, right? And I went out and, and funded that. And uh, that was also kind of energy Huge amount of energy. And anyway, then we went to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, it was really interesting because we were working at a macro level. And we did a, did a study with the, the, the whole lower.
5: The nice award.
4: Yeah. yeah. And, and then that kind of took us to a different place and embedded us more. And we're getting more involved in, um, well, we constructed the building, which is kind of unusual. Oh, I should say, I'm not very good at single line stuff. I'm going to move. <laughs> we figured.
2: Oh, okay.
4: you, you got down, right? Oh, radio format for really. you. This isn't uh, radio. This is podcasting. Uh, it's a whole um, new thing. A new um, radio. The, you could have said in the very beginning, I was extremely interested in the notion of getting students involved in the broader connectivity of our work. In, in political, cultural, social terms, et that it included
2: uh,
4: real politic. And in, in the case of New Orleans, it was the closest to that. We're producing a piece of work. And we um, did huge amount of research, made it, built it, took it apart, put it on trucks, delivered it, and put it together. And it was a, a kind of an aggressive, somewhat different kind of approach to education. And it was absolutely embedding them in the, in the reality of the world, right? And it was very, very important. And that, that triggered... In this case, Eugene Brock's interest, and it kind of took us someplace else, and it's still kind of rattling around. Right. And now, as we get to the Haiti project, at some point, it'll have to do with building an infrastructure. We just came from a meeting today and just finalized the last little pieces of things because we're going to be starting construction in weeks, I think. Yeah, year, right? yeah, literally. And um, that's where I want to want to go. And now I've got a group of people down in Haiti, and they're on a plane, and they spend they spend a week wandering around uh, the Port-au-Prince and. I, okay,
5: I mean, there's like a there was like a real mandate by Chancellor Blog to actually have a very aggressive outreach platform. So literally to get down from the ivory tower and start to kind of engage reality, so to speak, and have the students exposed to that. So as our activities were uh, gearing up parallel to this was a very clear recognition of an existing model, which of course always existed in the engineering, the scientific and the medical communities where you always had your uh, graduate and postdoc students working with either government or a way like these companies. So they were exposed to the challenges of of a real problem or a real agenda. And then these, these larger institutions, whether or not they're public or private, also were able to tap into the more creative, innovative aspects of academia. And so that already existed. In a research university, so we're sometimes scratching our head. How come that's not how, uh, affecting an urbanism? Right? Kind of makes sense. So that actually, these two existed, and then later on in our in the history of the Nan institute. They would kind of cross paths. And we're just
4: trying to bring it to the same plane as biology, engineering, medicine, really.
1: And that's something that I would understand a lot of people would be scared of, right? That they wouldn't want even graduate level students embarking on this level, and this real level of research and practice. Was there any type of like kickback or um, difficulty from with the students of convincing them that this was really something important that they do on the real the scene and in the real ground. No,
5: but I, I think I think one thing to kind of also recognize operationally, internal within let's say the halls of city halls everywhere in the government is that I would say like ninety percent of the world's uh, city planning departments are now relegated only to the job of like enforcement and policing planning codes, rather than in its um, romantic heydays when it was actually strategically envisioning toward the future, right? And for many reasons, staffing, funding, whatever—that um, legacy is is gone. And so we're able to kind of provide that level of comprehensive analysis and research that maybe sometimes these plan departments used to do, for example, right.
1: And Haiti now is one such example of that kind of comprehensive research incarnate. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, can you describe a little bit about the physical projects that are on the cusp of happening in Haiti?
4: Well, you've seen the um, the document Haiti now.
1: Our, it, our listeners have not, though, so maybe you can explain okay, a little bit yeah, about um, what it might be.
4: In very straightforward terms, it, it began not that differently than the L.A. Now first edition in that um, when we started working with the initiatives of Los Angeles, Richard Kachalak and I immediately had kind of a difference that we hadn't realized in terms of um, the definition of Los Angeles. And, and he was discussing initiatives and he was discussing downtown Los Angeles as the, what we call downtown Los Angeles, as the, as the European Eurocentric center. And I came from a completely different tradition. I came out of Gruen and L.A. was already defined as seven centers and et cetera. And downtown is one of the downtowns, et cetera, et cetera. And it didn't include here, Pasadena. It didn't include Long Beach and on and on, right? And so we immediately had this disagreement. And I was, I, the first thing the conversation led to was like, by the way, um, what is Los Angeles? Is this place? And and, and I went about looking at that and started with the camsat photograph of an urbanized area, which is the metropolitan area of LA, which is about 100 kilometers end to end, right? And um, it's 17 and a half million people and it encompasses um, four. Counties, etc., and that's what the city did. And what happened is that from the very beginning, as we started doing initiatives, it had a profound effect on the projects because all of them were located. Um, they were much more infrastructural, and they were interdisciplinary, and they were no longer projects that even saw kind of a single site in a traditional planning sense. But it was it was dealing with layers of of organizational tropes, right? And they were they were all dealing with the kind of complexities that were interested in the, the reality of the city. Well, when we in Haiti now, we're ten years later, and we're quite clear on kind of an approach to the project, and it started with, um, we're engaging in a project in Haiti. We're not sure what the project is. There's many projects. We're The first thing we have to do is understand the nature of this culture, and it's usually idiosyncratic, specific to right? the Haitian culture before we initiate the work. And it also probably came from an instant critique of the, um, the various relief efforts that were taking place that were completely outside of the understanding of the culture they're working with.
1: We've seen a lot of that now recently with the Red Cross initiative that has <clears throat> come up, and people being very critical of the effectiveness yeah, of yeah, their well, role.
4: There. So we said the first thing we have to do before we start this, and now it's become part of the organization of the studio that it starts with an information gathering and an understanding in the broad. Again, social, cultural, economic, political conditions that we're about to enter. And then the second part is problem formation, which is the most interesting part. It's not the solution, as you think of like design, especially in architectural schools. Yeah. Is, is actually formulating what are the really interesting potentials, right, that we, that we see in these situations that are potential or problem, right, plus minus. And then that's, in some ways, the most creative. And it shifted creativity from the formal, from the res- resolution stage, to the, the formulation of the problem, which is much more strategic and tactical, right, and embedded right, in locating the problems within political terms, within cultural terms, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? And that's where this came from. So we, we, And it was a year-and-a-half effort because it was a bit more complicated and a bit more unique than we anticipated in terms of the nature of this place. And it's a fascinating history that starts with discussions with Hamilton and, and uh, Jefferson, etc., right?
1: The design as formal solution versus design as problem, you've, you realize that that was something that you needed to be doing no, in problem this? Problem formation. Problem yeah. formation, excuse me, and how problem formation is really the most fascinating point right. that because you're now
4: by, at. Yeah, because by this time, we had um, started establishing a, a, a broad approach to the problems, which started with uh, the initial phase with information gathering and understanding the, um, the vast amount of information to locate the problem within these terms economic social cultural the second was problem formation and this became hugely important it was Kind of one of the inventions that took place with us is we're That's really right. thinking differently now. That's right. And again, as architects, as planners, we do think of solutions and we operate that way. And we started realizing that our, our interests were shifting much more towards policy, towards strategic and tactical thinking. And it was the formation of the problem. And it did, it already had come out of some of our earliest work mm-hmm. in LA, where we had one group that used the red line as the corridor for Schools and they were able to completely rework programs and use the capacity of the subway that wasn't used and find sports fields in the valley. And It was a really an interesting problem, but it was the problem that was so fascinating. We, I forgot, we had one of the, the head of the district of Philadelphia showed up and uh, forget the design and the kind of look of it, it was the invention of the, the problem that was so interesting. And so, we've been kind of working on this, these ideas for a while. And
5: also, like the 2012 Olympic, that was actually a strategic huge approach.
4: Right? Oh, and then, uh What part of the 2012 program? Uh, Well, now there's a parallel and our studio uh, works in urban territory and we published a commentary urbanism uh, three years ago. And, um, there's a parallel set of projects that come out of the studio, and now there's going to be a kind of a leaping back and forth between the work of LA Now at UCLA and our professional group that we put together with that and our own work in the studio. And there's even little pieces that are going to show up together because of the fact that we're, we are in terms of characters and right, the, the staffing, et cetera, mm-hmm. connected. And we're exploring Again, a lot of these problems are parallels to the, top, the same problems we're exploring in the studio, my studio. The and it's i have to say with that um it's been um the academic work at ucla has had a really neat, fascinating and absolutely powerful influence in the office it's shifted us and it's because again we're entrenched in four decades at work and we're kind of located within the formal terms and people that interpret problems with informal etc cetera, etc and we've been moving continually to the strategic and tactical and it's it's, it's and as it's, the project has gotten larger it's service as well and we've shifted and it's we're actually, the office in a way is more in alignment with the studio than the other way around, right? It's been, the, the connection has been extremely useful.
0: Could you talk a little bit about your work with the locals in Haiti on this project?
4: Mm, totally essential that we were embedded at some point and We immediately had um, some very close kind of connections. And when you read the book, you're going to see that the chapters are actually headed by um, yeah, ministers. Exactly, And right. uh, it, it became apparent to us that they were going to get engaged in, in the reality of, whatever project we're working with, that we had to be kind of connected. And this is the, you yeah. know, this is your, your, much no, more I mean, ter- your it, territory.
5: It, it's exactly what Tom said. Um, uh, in order for us to even gain respect or ownership together with our locals uh, that we need to have local authority, local knowledge. And that's one of our defining uh, differences against all the other NGOs uh, where their platform is to come in and basically say, please step out of the way. Um, I know what to do with you, which was completely um, a position of arrogance and short-sightedness. So we almost come in uh, almost 50% at a, at a position of kind of vulnerability saying, okay, we we need partnership. And I would say within uh, two and a half to almost three years uh, from... Just entering, we've been now able to get to the prime minister's desk, and we're now we've been um, recorded on, on TV and newspaper. And part of that uh, partnership comes from basically one of the strongest is our, on the local side was uh, Frederick Mangonez, who is uh, one of the premier architects in the country. And at the global level is um, Madame uh, Michelin-Jean, who was the ex-governor general and commander-in-chief of Canada. She's probably the highest ranked Haitian in the world. And she was a UNESCO special envoy to Haiti and now currently the chancellor to University of Ottawa and now the head of the Francophonie group. So she's been uh, an amazing advocate uh, with us. Uh, Locally, also at the same time, we had Carl Alexander and... um, the current vice chancellor of student affairs at UCSB, Claudine Michelle, who was also the originator of the Haitian Journal, the only peer-reviewed journal on Haitian scholarship in the United States. So for us, it was, it was incredibly important to have equal partnership with scholars and professionals and policymakers in Haiti uh, to have any level of legitimacy. And so this book, which is, by the way, for all the readers, it's uh, around 720 pages, and you could buy it on, on Amazon right now, Haiti now, and cross-referenced against Tom Main as a name. But a lot of these sectors, a lot of these essays are actually anchored by our Haitian partners. And it's this level of kind of collaboration that was uh, crucial for us.
1: And the text is in both French and English, is correct?
5: Absolutely. Can't survive there without French.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering, because this book is so gigantic and comprehensive and does contain such a density of information. And you do have such a solid presence in Haiti that you worked so hard to establish. At what point did you decide that all of this information was absolutely going to be a book and not some other type of media, not not something um, perhaps interactive online that people could update and change, but instead the choice to, to uh, contain it all in a book? I
4: know even the same way. For me, it was important that the we were discussing earlier the notion of book as a physical logic versus the, the websites, et cetera, and digital media. And to me, it was important that it, it needed the weight, literally and intellectually, of a document, and that um, the digital media is a bit too ephemeral, and that we made a real commitment, which we did. We put huge, huge capital in this, in this product, and that it was important there was a document. Hopefully, when you look at this book, we did a it's a slow food and fast food. There's a fast food edition. You can read the first. We summarized the whole thing. And um, it was purposeful. You could get through the first, what is it, the 20, 30, 40 pages. Yeah. And then if you want the deep reading, you could keep going. And it was from the beginning, we looked at the uh, the potential reader would be one it's just a more big picture. But you could still thumb your way through. And in a way, it didn't matter what page you opened. You could find anything. There's this huge amount of information. But it's also the deep reader that you really wanted it. and you could go into each of these categories and and, um, and find the information you needed but we also wanted it to, um, and I mean this in an arrogant way um, we wanted it to be the definitive document that we put some time in this and if you're looking at um, understanding Haiti in this point of the 21st century that this is the document and we were clearly seeing it as our groundwork for the future product that this is if we did it correctly it's setting us up for now the, the quote real work which we're now engaged in and that we needed the um we felt the proof, the commitment that we're we can walk, we can walk the walk, and that that was important for us. That we're we're serious and we're making a commitment here, and we will. It is turning out to be that we're continuing to work. Because now what's happened is, in the now institute, it'll be the first time there's going to be multiple projects that we continue with Haiti with one group. We're involved in the Grand Challenges at UCLA with another. And we're mm, like an office environment. That's very possible we're going to have three or four projects going simultaneously, which is also extremely useful in terms of um, the types of students we're recruiting, which are global, and et cetera, that it's um, opening up new possibilities in terms of what we could do in any one year and the projects that have continuity over three or four years.
5: And I think the uh, the singularity of the product was really important because for anybody who, who is very familiar with working down in Haiti, um, you will get tons and tons of uh, resources everywhere, uh, ranging from like infrastructure to like medical to like social issues. And the issues is that they're all separated and then they're all like siloed. And so kind of like the, the, the physical singular integration of all these issues together, that itself proved to be a highly effective kind of product. So we just had the we, we just had the book launched down in Haiti. And what was interesting was that it drew out and surfaced some voices of criticism, some voices of kind of curiosity, supporters, and then whatever, basically the voices that surfaced. The important thing was that everybody was able to now speak on a common baseline platform. And that probably was probably one of the most important things that the Haitians were exposed to by having this book. And I think that was well, probably a moment to now move forward with perhaps the next edition.
4: Or and then again, it's even deeper because we've, uh, again, the discussion with UCLA and the institution of UCLA, it gave us a broader platform and it included uh, relationships with really important figures for us. And it, it includes a Charles Waldheim at Harvard and, and an Berger at MIT and and uh, Lars Lerup and Albert Pope, well-known urbanists out of, out of um, Rice and um We've had continual um, broad resources in terms of the, the critics that have walked us through this that were part of the, yeah. part of the process. And yeah. it also, I have to say, you didn't mention he uh, through one of our clients, uh, it definitely had an influence. We got a $270,000 grant for the water project. And uh, for the life tree that he brought in from Seoul, and these are all kind of connected to the kind of commitment we're making and where we want to go as, a, as our nonprofit. Right.
5: I mean, what, what was kind of funny, uh, anecdotally, was um, every time we would go down, we would actually, of course, have earlier draft versions of these. And, you know, it started off as 200 pages and 300, 400. Every visit would be another 100-page increase. But that actually became, by de facto, uh, the best kind of business card or the best kind of introduction to what we have as a legitimacy as a test of legitimacy. And, and I think especially in a, in a, in a lot of uh, countries where perhaps the internet or perhaps like electronic inter- uh, communication is probably not as prevalent, these actually carry still a lot of authority, the, the printed book. And uh, that actually kind of helped us quite a bit. I
0: was wondering if you could maybe just mention something about how your experience with the Now Institute has informed your perception of how architectural education is, is treated these days.
4: Work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> but it's reinforcing instincts I had 10 years ago, and that I'm uh, still um, committed to the broadening of the profession. And it's probably um, linked, first of all, to uh, my anticipation of the most compelling problems that will be facing us in the next decades. And they would be um, broad, interdisciplinary, urban, infrastructural problems that are outside the terms of of architecture as a more singular building oriented formal etc and i think that um it's important that we um we access that our students have access to a much broader set of um, trajectories and they have developed operational modes of systems of thinking that allow them to deal with the complexities of, of the world as it exists today within its global terms and with its radically kind of interconnected connectedness and that um We'll always have good architects, and though will be always a need for architecture. And I'm, I'm not concerned with that, and, and um, it's a major part of my practice and and my own reputation. And it seemed a perfect time to kind of expand. And again, it's 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 um, continuing a project that, as you know, kind of died out in the '80s: urban design, planning, physical planning, especially, right? That, strangely enough, precisely when we need that, we no longer have. Institutions that are focused on that, and that was my generation way back when. You, urban design was actually a, a major kind of field, and um, now we have huge projects which are that would have been called mega structures, and et cetera, et cetera, that are now common projects all over the world. And we have, I think, less and less ability to understand and solve those types of problems. And I'm fascinated with that. And I find, I'm convinced that the most compelling kind of work. And interesting enough, we found now for quite a few years there's a, seemed to be a, a group of young people that have the same instincts. That they're um, less interested in the singular, artistically driven character that makes architecture, right? That everybody knows, right? And um, they seem to be much more collectively oriented. Like we find, and it's been now for, I think since the beginning, not at all. A lot of people ask us if it's a problem working in teamwork and these people are working in groups of with the subgroups, whatever. We have usually 12, 11 to 15 people working with. They seem to be very much oriented towards that. And they they understand that to develop this document, the Haiti document, this is beyond their capability. And this is now what they leave their year of, of, of study of UCLA. And it's this massive document that, that 11 of them worked with over a year. And this seems to be... Um, kind of interested in that with young people they're in the same kind of plane and um i think also more of them are getting interested in outside of the formal territory right Mm -hmm. that they're interested they see the world the same way how do we how do you define architecture urban planning planning what is the role of the architect today what are the problems that that are necessary that architects are set up to solve and um it's, it's the basis of our the whole interest in the institute
5: Right. And it's, it's kind of like a shift in how one would actually define design, right? So to a certain group of people, certain designers, uh, the word design would connote beauty, form, certain kind of singularity. To another group, design is, is about problem solving. And I think, uh, in urbanism, when I go toward the problem solving component of the word design, it actually opens up a huge range of discussions. But most importantly, it, for me at least, is how to make design relevant to the actual existence and the meaning of of what we do here and not, it's not a choice, right? But it is actually critical up there with engineering. And I think once we're in urbanism, you actually have a responsibility to understand like what Tom said, policy, economics, sometimes probably not the real kind of attractive romantic topics that architectural education teaches you in undergraduate. But these are the forces that will shape you. These are the forces that you could actually be use as your ally or it's going to consume you. And you have to not be strategic in terms of how to wrestle with these issues. And uh, that's what right now we we open the uh, the students to. And definitely
4: if they've left us something, we're interested in a method of thinking. It's not a specific project. It's a method of thinking on a project. And it's been really fascinating in that, um, uh, especially with certain of the Asian students, which are a little bit used to kind of a hierarchy with the professor Somebody with knowledge. And I'll, I'll. what's the problem? I'm not sure. You'll define that. A project that seems to be the most compelling at the moment for us. And then you get to the, the next stage and what's the solution? I haven't got a clue. That's, that's our job. <laughs> hmm. We're investigating something. And if I knew it, we wouldn't have to do it. Right? Mm-hmm. That's why we're here. And um, it sets up a really different kind of notion than the most traditional studio working under an authority. Right? right. And I'm fascinated with it. And we spend a lot of time talking about it. What we're gonna talk about is really kind of the method of investigating a project. And it's the method that you could take with you. The specifics will, will change continuously. And it's um it goes from micro to macro and it goes from usually understanding interdisciplinary complex problems, etc. Cetera, et cetera, And it's um it's fascinating. Every day you go in, you it's instead of coming in, this is what I do and we're gonna learn this system and you're gonna design architecture like this and it's mimetic it's the beaux arts it's uh, we walk in and we're all in the same place to some degree okay we've been through it a few times <laughs> in other ways but we're all looking for right, right. kind of this and it's um we're scratching our heads there's times and we're really kind of stuck uh this one's been a really really the haiti's been a really really tough one and we just finished today this life tree the water infrastructure thing and we've been struggling right and with uh, the for a year and um I'm coming away today. I will have conversations with my wife tonight, going, "Oh my God, finally we got this thing. We, we honed it down today, and it's been really a struggle, and it has not been an easy project. And uh, it's it's the, it's also like we talked about earlier that the office and the academic studio are gluing together, right? More and more, we're they're, they're more and more similar.
5: I mean, this book was actually done. By two people. So one was uh, um, Esther Chung, who's currently at, at at MIT, but she was she came up from MIT architecture, but she was interested more in economics and uh, and loving traffic patterns. Right, that's her whole thing. And then uh, James, who is right now at Morphosis and he's a designer, a visual guy. So it's kind of conjoins intellectual investigation uh, with a very accessible set of graphic languages and communication right. skills. And then Bridget, who's right now kind of taking care of this, and it represents all the different forces that we want our, the next generation to actually uh, possess. Right.
4: And we were discussing earlier your, your work at CIRRC. Our job is to launch people. As teachers, our, our job is to promote their ambitions and move them along. And if we do it really well, we can help launch them. And so the, the success of this, the most useful success, would be to certain people that had huge responsibility. And actually, that's proven out lovely. We had right. a whole group of them that just really took off, didn't they? And as they should have, being involved in something as as comprehensive as this.
0: Will you continue to document the work on this project? Oh yeah. In what format on the There'll be,
4: we're not sure. Uh, there'll be a piece on Capation itself. We did a, a vast master plan, and that we're now discussing, we're just. Ended the quarter and are now sitting down and we use the summers as our uh, completion of things graphically or digitally or whatever and then setting up the next the next year and there's going to be definitely something on the um, the life tree the water we're we're just finishing design but that will be like the New Orleans project it'll end with a photograph of the real infrastructure in. In this case, Port-au-Prince, and uh, as a project, and again, like working in our own studio, we're going to be with the students, going, "We did it. And we actually built it. We're going to show up there and now test it, etc." And it's, we've worked on it for, including the the groundwork. It's it's a three three and a half year project.
5: It's um, um, Hades. Uh, it's just it, it's an incredible story. So basically, the whole legacy of the and the story of the country kind of represents the complete absolute. Triumphs of humanity and absolute uh, challenges to humanity. I mean, for some of the readers, you know, it's like a quick soundbite is, you know, this is the first country that defeated Napoleon before Waterloo. This is the first uh, slave nation to free itself. It's the first black nation in the Western Hemisphere. It's this is where Christopher Columbus landed. This is where fifty percent of the world's coffee and, shu- and sugar was supplied by Haiti. And in the twentieth century, a lot of political and economic challenges. And through through it all, the one theme is, you know, the people are beautiful, they're incredibly resilient, and they manage to see beauty in the most kind of challenging disasters. And I think it's with that spirit that uh, we're working with uh, UNESCO and with the government try to see if the original historical city called Capation that Napoleon actually set up and was actually the original city. It's kind of, it's the model of the French Quarter of New Orleans was copied after Capation can actually not be revitalized for the new kind of face of the country. And that's where we're kind of participating. But the
4: only culture. In the Western Hemisphere is New Orleans.
5: It's fascinating. Wow.
4: Creole culture. The, the French.
5: Did you
0: make a lot of connections the French between those two? Were, at, in, the, in the, the, the
4: French were in New Orleans and then brought mm-hmm. the same West Africans a little bit in Cuba that's quite small now. The triad, and so it's really fascinating that the only culture that shares with them is is in the U.S. and it's 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 called New Orleans. And then by coincidence, we were in New Orleans X amount of years ago, so there was a kind of a <laughs> weird kind of connection with the Creole culture and, and and black magic and blah 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 and all this stuff. And it's, it's totally fascinating.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming and thank talking you. to us about the book. The book is a beautiful piece of work. That we'll definitely include links to on our show notes for this podcast.
1: And some nice shots of the physical piece to retain the uh, focus on physical identity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we're going to be uh, giving away some of the copies of the book as well.
4: Terrific. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Terrific. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, so much. you both. It's thank really both. been a
4: pleasure.
2: Really
0: appreciate Likewise. it. is all ours. Thank you. All right. Well, that was our interview with Tom Maine and Isang Yi from Morphosis and Haiti Now or the NOW Institute. If you would like a copy of Haiti Now, and you would also like to give us feedback on this podcast, as I mentioned earlier, please go to our website to fill out a survey and make sure to include your email address in the email field. If you would like to be in the running to receive a copy of Haiti Now, again, the address is arcnct.co forward slash sessions dash feedback. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And if you've been with us all season, thanks for listening to us all season. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, reach out to us on Twitter with hashtag Archonnect Sessions or send us an email to connect at arcconnect.com And if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes and make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're released. Have a great summer.
1: Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.